there, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's FreeGardenCourse.com. Uh, Mike and I have developed some lessons to help you create your very own organic oasis. We'll guide you through the steps to build your perfect natural landscape, an edible earth-friendly yard, a sustainable deep bed garden, or even start a small profitable market farm. We'll show you how to save time, lower your produce bill, collect usable data, eat healthy, nutritious food with minimal labor, um, use the most effective and efficient production methods currently being used in backyard gardens as well as market farms, and maybe even help you find some profitable markets. We've designed it to save you time, lower your produce bill, and help you eat healthy, nutritious food. Um, there's checklists, there's outside reading, video assignments. Uh, you can join the online Facebook community where there's lots of people from around the world to help you get your garden started today. So remember, freegardencourse.com. Welcome to the Organic Gardener podcast today, my first interview of 2019. And I couldn't be more excited because my guest today has this just amazing green future grower story. I know listeners, you're going to absolutely love it. Um, don't worry if you're driving, I will make awesome show notes because I know he is just going to drop a million golden seeds, which is what I call like golden nuggets or like valuable information. Um, with this interview, he's the CEO of Advancing Eco Agriculture. John Kempf is on a mission to produce healthier soil, stronger crops, and consistently higher yields. And what I love about his story is how he started out. So I hope, um, I just can't wait for you to hear it. And his passion for growing healthy soil and healthy plants. Um, just his website is so contagious. There's so much information there. I know you're going to love. So welcome to the show, John Kemp. Thank you, Jackie. I'm glad to be here. Oh, yeah. And you have an amazing podcast, too. So just another um, podcast that listeners might want to um, learn about. But why don't you, you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, that can be a very brief story. I love what I do. I have fun. That can be the extent of it. <laughs> but um, my, I grew up on a family fruit and vegetable farm in Northeast Ohio in the snowbelt south of Lake Erie, um, small scale market fruits and vegetables for wholesale markets. In the early 2000s, we had three consecutive years of very intense rainfall, very intense disease and insect pressure, and we lost a number of crops, uh, lost the majority of our crops uh, three consecutive years to a variety of different diseases and insects. And in the third year, 2004, we observed that plants which were grown on healthy soil that had not had a history of pesticide applications that had better biology and better organic matter were very disease and insect resistant. They were, there was one cantaloupe crop that was very resistant to powdery mildew where we had the same crop planted on two different soils side by side and on the soil with the previous pesticide exposure for the prior decade of growing vegetables, we had that we lost the majority of that crop to powdery mildew. At harvest time, 80% of the leaves were infected with powdery mildew. And on the new soil that hadn't had the history of pesticide exposure, there was zero powdery mildew, not 5% or 10%, but you couldn't find any. There was this knife line effect right down through the center of the field. So that was really a major turning point. I wanted to know what are the differences between those two plants and what allows one plant to be resistant to powdery mildew when the next plant two feet away is susceptible. So asking that question and the things that I learned about plant sciences and agronomy 
from asking that question were what led to founding Advancing Eco-Agriculture in 2006. And the foundational idea that we began with at AEA was the idea that we can grow plants that are completely resistant to diseases and insects based on how we manage nutrition. And that then led to a number of other interesting correlations as well, and where we identified that um, plants that are extremely healthy, not only are they resistant to diseases and insects, but they also regenerate soil health at the same time. And then in the process of this journey, I was very fortunate to be guided by some extraordinary mentors uh, from within the USDA, uh, land-grant universities, from, from all over the world uh, for that matter. And I realized that a lot of this information, this, this really exceptional information and really great experiences that many very wise people had was scattered all over the place. It was sometimes difficult to find. Some of it was not recorded at all. Some experiences were, were not being transferred at all. And so that led to uh, me starting the Regenerative Agriculture podcast with the intention and the goal of interviewing a lot of these leading scientists and leading farmers and sharing their knowledge and their information with other professional agronomists and growers who wanted to produce crops in a regenerative agriculture context. Wow. Well, see, I knew you dropped a bunch of golden seeds right there. And I know listeners are going to love your podcast. So you kind of told us because you grew up on a family farm, like, was that your very first gardening experience? Like, have you always just been growing or just like, cause that's how I usually start out my show is asking about your very first gardening experience. Like, you must have been a kid. Well, I, I grew up, um, even from before I remember, we always had a family garden and grew all of our own food. So in fact, I, I grew up on a family homestead. We were very richly blessed and I appreciate it much more now as an adult. But um, there were many years in which my parents purchased salt and pepper and spices and that was just about it. Um, we had our own uh, maple syrup and honey and stevia as sweeteners. We grew our own, some of our own herbs, many of our own herbs. Um, we had, we had two farm ponds in which we raised fish. We raised poultry. Uh, we had our own grass fed beef. Uh, we had our own family dairy cow and we grew a large garden and a small orchard. So we lived an incredibly rich life from a food quality perspective. And then, um, my parents started growing vegetables commercially, <clears throat> in 1994 and so I was still very young I just started so my, my earliest memories are from working out in the fields um, harvesting fruits and vegetables for wholesale markets. So are you a millennial? Wait, eight, 1980 to 1995? Yeah I would fit into that group. Awesome. I love millennials. I always talk about rock star millennials. I don't know why I thought that you were older than that. So anyway, um, so you have this amazing journey and you started like, I'm just so curious about like, it's almost like you had this test plot going just like at Rodale's. Like, why did you have this test plot where part of the land was not getting sprayed with any kind of like, or was just growing naturally and the other part was getting these chemical inputs on it. Well, I suppose you could right? say it was an accidental test plot of sorts. Um, we, we have 
grew up in a culture and being informed by the land-grant university extension agents that uh, pesticides were fine and appropriate, they weren't going to damage you, and we, we didn't know any better. Um, and it, it seems kind of surreal looking back at it now, but we, we were uninformed. We were not aware of the challenges and the dangers of pesticides, which we've now learned very, very clearly. And as a result, uh, we were using a lot of pesticides on our farm. In fact, my dad was the regional distributor for seeds and fertilizers and equipment and also for pesticides in our local region. As a result of him being a distributor, we were the first people to use new products on the marketplace, all the newest, latest and greatest cocktails and experiment with them on our crops and then make recommendations to our customers and how well they were working for us. As a result, I was even, I was a licensed pesticide applicator when I was 16. And as a result of this, um, the, the farm that we were farming on ourselves that we were managing had a history of growing vegetables on vegetables year after year with a cover crop during the winter months and very intense pesticide applications during the summer. In 2004, we began renting a field from a neighboring farm that was in a dairy farm rotation. So it was corn, small grains, two years of alfalfa. It was a four-year rotation with only one year in corn. And so that soil did not have the prior history of pesticide applications. Instead, it had had uh, limestone applications and manure applications, et cetera. That soil was much richer and much more fertile. So this field bordered right up against one of our own fields. And now, because we were managing and farming both fields together, we started planting crops directly across the field border, which produced that knife line effect right down to the center of the field, where on one side, we had very intense powdery mildew infections, and on the other side, there was no powdery mildew present. This is fascinating. Uh, and so then, so then after that, is that kind of how you started this whole thing from that? Well, that was really the light bulb, is I wanted to know what are the differences between these two plants, and what emerged after doing a tremendous amount of reading and studying and speaking to a lot of different people, I learned that there are some areas of plant science which are not even considered in mainstream agronomy, and particularly, or which particularly were not at, at that point in time. Things have evolved a lot in the last 15 years. But <clears throat> at that point- Yeah, but thanks to people like you. <laughs> well, there, there's many people who are, uh, there, there's definitely an evolving perspective on uh, on agriculture. Do you know who to grow Liz Carlisle is, who wrote the book, The Lentil Underground? Uh, I know of him. I don't know him personally. It, it's a her, Liz Carlisle. Okay. And she wrote this book called The uh, Lentil Underground. Um, and it's kind of like asked those same questions. She was like, I think she was getting like her PhD from Stanford or, yeah. What I, is she what there I learned, now, I know. What I learned in my research was and in its simplest expression, is that plants have an immune system exactly the same way that we do. We know that all of us have our own immune systems, and yet they don't all work equally well. We know people who become ill with the first cold or flu bug that comes along, and we know other people who practically never become ill. And the only difference between those two individuals is the way their immune system has been supported with nutrition over the course of their entire lifetime. In fact, from even before they were born. And the same holds true of plants as well, that we can support a plant nutritionally 
so that it has a very functional immune system. And very aggressive immune systems allow plants to be extremely resistant to a broad array of disease and insect pests. You know, I like the way you break this down because I feel like I have a lot of people ask me questions about this that, you know, here I have a podcast and then they start to ask me questions. I don't, I don't know, like the way that you're explaining this, I think that they, I might be able to explain to them better. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's, uh, there are agriculture, agriculture ecosystems. It's challenging to communicate effectively about agriculture ecosystems because there is a fundamental dissonance between the scientific method and agriculture ecosystems. The scientific method is based around um, single factor analysis to a large degree. Uh, identify a specific factor, a specific addition, and see how the system changes when you add something or when you subtract something. And this is a challenge whenever you speak about ecosystem environments because agriculture and soil and plant systems are so interconnected and so interrelated that when you shift and change one piece, then everything else also changes. So I think one of the gifts that I have been able to bring is to be able to communicate these many different interrelated scientific concepts and ideas and kind of connect the dots, so to speak, and communicate them in a very simple manner that is easier to understand. I agree. Uh, so, and on your website, you have so many videos that I know and under the webinar page that my listeners would be completely interested in hearing. So do you want to tell us about something that maybe has surprised you with all your um, research that you've been doing and the different people that you've been talking to? I get a new surprise almost every week, it seems. Um, <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> So it's, it's hard to identify a, a single surprise, but I, I would say that um, perhaps the biggest surprise is the, the realization that this knowledge and this understanding of plant immune systems and managing plant nutrition uh, has, has not already been the mainstream. And, and I understand that there are substantial economic forces that um, would be at a disadvantage if this information were much more widely known. However, the reality is that the, the concepts, the principles, I mean, the foundational science underpinnings of regenerative agriculture ecosystems have been around for 50, 60, 70 years or longer. Um, and, and even some of the foundations upon which the green agricultural green revolution is based were refuted by the very same people who started some of the ideas originally. So uh, the, the classical example is uh, Justice von Liebig when he wrote um, The Law of the Minimum. He described how the nutrient which is in least supply is going to limit plant yields and development. That of course triggered the application of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, fertilizers, etc. And yet, what, what few people know is that Liebig then published a second book before he died in which he completely reversed his position, and he said that it's all about biology. It's not about the chemistry. 
And so that was, that was, that's a 150 plus year old example. And there's many other examples of leading scientists of the day who understood the information and knowledge very well. So I think we have the knowledge, we have the information today on how to implement regenerative agriculture ecosystems on a very large scale. We don't need any new information. We don't need any new ideas. We simply need to implement what we already know. So what are like, can you give listeners like any, because most of the people that have been on my show have talked about some of the difficulties of doing it large scale. Like, is it similar to like what people are talking about, like no-till and, um, you know, permaculture and just not digging or is it something different that you're doing? Well, I think um, our approach, the approach that we've developed at Advancing Eco-Agriculture carries a couple of very fundamental differences. One key fundamental difference in particular from many other approaches to uh, what I'll refer to as biological or ecological or organic agriculture. And the difference is that many of these biological approaches are very soil centric. They focus that the common mantra is that we need to regenerate soil health. And when we have that healthy soil creates healthy plants. And we actually believe that the opposite is true. We take a very plant-centric approach, and we say that healthy plants create healthy soil. When you think about carbon sequestration, building soil organic matter, the reality is that all of those things happen as a result of plants and photosynthesis, not from soil, not from soil biology. Plants create soil biology. Plants create the soil environment. And so in, in our approach, where we work with very large scale commercial agriculture ecosystems, our focus is on changing soil across the entire farm by growing really healthy plants. So when we're growing commercial strawberries in California, when we're growing tomatoes in Florida, when we're growing corn in Iowa, our focus is to change the health and the quality of those plants such that those plants will change the soil. And I can say that we can regenerate soil health. We can build organic matter while we're growing corn. We can build organic matter while we're growing strawberries and we can build organic matter while we're growing tomatoes. So the, the only difference between regenerative agriculture ecosystems and degenerative systems is in how the farm manager manages plant health. That's really the fundamental difference. So the, the approach, when, when I think about regenerative agriculture ecosystems, it's all about how do you manage plant health. It's, I'm completely tillage agnostic. I am permaculture agnostic. I think those are valuable, useful ideas that certainly have merit and that are very appropriate in some places and sometimes. But you're not going to grow carrots in a no-till environment on a large scale. It's just, it's not going to happen. So we need to develop regenerative agriculture ecosystems that can regenerate soil health and improve plant health and provide functional food as medicine on a very large scale. And so to do that, um, I, I tend to, um, my, my perspective has always been that we cannot be tied to ideology. The ideas have to be real, they have to be practical, and they, we have to be able to implement them on scale. So we don't actually, in our work, um, we don't, to have in-depth conversations about no-till and about permaculture. They're useful and valuable ideas, but they're not the most important ideas. You can regenerate soil health in a tillage environment. 
You can build soil organic matter while you have tillage. You can build soil organic matter while you have a continual annual cropping system. So uh, I think our, I, I would much prefer to focus on the actual results and the actual execution rather than on a specific ideology. Okay, so then like, I don't know. How, how do you how do you create healthy plants then? Ah, the magical question, the perfect question. Oh, okay. And the foundational question: How do you create healthy plants if your if your emphasis is not on soil health, um, and using soil health to well, first of all, let me say that um, the the mantra, the idea that you need to have healthy soil to have healthy plants, is is not. A fallacy. Uh, it, it is possible to grow healthy plants when you when you've regenerated and rebuilt soil health. But the challenge is that most growers are not there today. They don't have healthy soil, and so that the common prescription to develop healthy soil is to use cover crops, to add compost, and to no-till, to do all these various things. And those are valuable and useful tools but they're not always accessible and they don't always make sense for a given farming environment. We need to incorporate as many of them in, as we can where they are appropriate. But I believe the, the foundational piece, the single most important piece is we need to drive a plant's photosynthesis. And here's, here's the foundational idea. What we have come to accept as common and what we perceive as being normal is plants which are only photosynthesizing at about 15 to 20% of their inherent genetic capacity and their inherent biochemical capacity. It's possible to manage plant nutrition in such a way to increase the photosynthesis volume in every 24 hour photo period by as much as three to five times and sometimes more. So when you think about that, when you have a plant that is producing five times more sugar in every 24-hour photo period, does that mean you're going to have five times more yield? Does it mean you're going to have to have you're going to have five times more biomass? The the answers are different for different crops because different plants express themselves in different ways. But when you have five times more sugar, the end result is that the majority of that additional so you'll, you'll get a yield increase. You might get a 30 to a 40 percent yield increase in some cases. Some cases a 15 to 20 percent yield increase. Some cases as much as 100 percent yield increase, which we've observed particularly on vegetative crops. But you won't commonly see a three to a five X yield increase, even though you see that much of an increase in sugar production. So the question is, where does all the remaining sugar go? And the answer is that the sugar, that surplus of sugar produced during photosynthesis gets sent out through the root system as root exudates as a food source for soil biology. And this is the foundation of how Plants build soil organic matter, sequester large volumes of carbon, and build soil biology very, very quickly, is they can transmit, they have the capacity to transmit tremendous volumes of sugar down out through the root system as root exudates. In fact, for many crops, the, the quantity of really healthy plants, the quantity of root exudates exceeds the quantity of plant biomass, both root biomass and plant biomass combined. So that means if you have a tomato plant, which has 20 pounds of tomatoes and 20 pounds of plant biomass, that 
40 pounds, there is an equivalent of that 40 pounds of total plant biomass in the soil profile as redexidates, as long as you have a really healthy plant. Most plants today don't do this. So to go back to the question that you originally asked me is, how do you do this? Uh, in, in a commercial setting uh, where we have compromised soils and very challenging environments, our approach is to use foliar applications of trace minerals that are needed specifically for the photosynthetic process. And we essentially give the plant the nutrients that it needs to photosynthesize at a very high rate and then transmit sugars to the root system, which stimulates biology. And now the biology in the soil profile begins extracting minerals and making minerals available for plants. So I view foliar applications of nutrients as um, they're the jet fuel in the engine that gets the flywheel going. They're, they're an initial very strong surge that accelerate the overall system. Uh, they're not something that should be necessary indefinitely for the long term, but they can really help get things started moving very quickly on a much higher plateau of performance. Where do you get the trace minerals? <laughs> well, uh, we've built a company called Advancing Eco Agriculture to answer that question. <laughs> um, so there are there are five key minerals that are necessary for really strong photosynthesis and to increase it um, by several orders of magnitude. So the and for all of our listeners, I'll just give you a quick rundown of the list. This is, this is the spot where you want to take notes. Uh, the list of necessary nutrients, your plant needs to have enough of these. Not saying you need to always add more, just that your plants need to have enough. Um, the, the four minerals that are most crucial are magnesium, iron, nitrogen, and manganese. If any of those four is limited to any degree, it will have an immediate blocking effect on photosynthesis. The fifth mineral is phosphorus. It's not directly a part of the photosynthesis process, but is needed to metabolize all the sugars that are produced from this higher volume of photosynthesis. So in general, and this is of course an oversimplification, some grower, some um, gardeners may have crops which are also lacking other nutrients, but we find that these initial five nutrients, when we apply them as a foliar spray, can really accelerate what is happening in the garden or in the crops very, very quickly. Can you get those minerals from some, I don't know, any other sources? Um, you, can, you can source, obviously nitrogen can be sourced in many different places in many different ways. Our preferred source of nitrogen um, on, a com on a commercial side, we often use urea uh, organically. We will often use um, dry powdered amino acids. So you can, you can purchase a number of different amino acid powders today. Uh, but so nitrogen is readily easily to source and supply. Um, and it's very careful. We need to be careful not to do that in excess as well, because actually many plant health problems are caused by nitrogen excesses. Um, magnesium can be sourced from Epsom salts, magnesium sulfate, which is very inexpensive and readily available. And it's a very good source actually. Um, iron and manganese are interesting. Iron and manganese, must be chelated and they need to be in the reduced form but generally chelates will be in the reduced form so uh, we need to have manganese and iron chelates manganese and iron sulfates are ineffective as foliar sprays um, so those those materials that i mentioned are 
you, you should be able to source those fairly readily from almost any garden supply store. And um, then the fifth element that I described is phosphorus. Uh, phosphorus is also fairly readily available in, in many different um, fertilizers and many different fertilizer formulations. So you can source any of those from any garden store. Uh, just make sure that you address each of those five and uh, be prepared for some. I guess I meant more like, can you grow them like as cover crops? Like people grow like green beans, right? For nitrogen. And like I grew buckwheat last year. Um, the short answer is if you want to take 10 years, yes. If you want to go from zero to 60 in three weeks, no. If you want to regenerate soil health very rapidly and grow really healthy crops very quickly, we need to use foliar sprays because it's going to, it takes a very long period of time to regenerate soil and soil biology. See, the, the challenge is this. When you're growing your cover crop of buckwheat, if that cover crop of buckwheat is only photosynthesizing at 20% of its inherent capacity, that means you're only going to have 20% of the potential impact on soil health and you'll release much less than 20% of the nutrients that that cover crop would be capable of, of, of um, releasing. So if instead you were to focus on managing the nutrition of that buckwheat cover crop and increase its photosynthesis to a level five times greater, now you're going to really accelerate the entire process. Now you're going to get much more rapid release of nutrients from the soil profile and a much more nutrient availability. So the use of foliar sprays, as I said earlier, it's, it's really a question of, do you want to take 10 years to produce an effect or do you want to do it in 60 days? I think a fundamental difference, and the reason we've taken such a different approach is we've realized that on the commercial farming side, we need to deliver an immediate economic response. When a grower applies a product, it needs to pay the bills immediately, not in five years or not in 10 years from now, this growing season. And that is a promise which many soil amendments cannot deliver. Many rock powders, sometimes compost and, and, uh, and other amendments, they take a long time, cover crops take a long time to deliver an economic response. Foliar sprays deliver an immediate economic response and they make the other soil amendments work much more effectively. Uh, so is the place to start like getting a soil test? Cause that's been recommended by a lot of my guests in the past. Um, so you know exactly what to put on? I, or? I have to be the controversial person here and, uh, and uh, stir up a <laughs> bit of a debate. So, um, you can take a soil analysis. We use soil analysis as a tool on all the farms that we work on. We recommend it. Um, but the question is, if you then do take a soil analysis, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with that information? If the answer to that question is that we're then going to make recommendations that you need to apply this list of soil amendments, limestone, gypsum, rock phosphate, compost, whatever the list might contain, um, that's the wrong answer. In, in my perspective, uh, I, I recently, I think actually just a month ago, my, my most recent webinar was on managing nutritional priorities, managing product application priorities. What is, and I, I described the sequence, of if you want to make an immediate impact and a big difference on your operation or on your garden, how do you sequence, how do you decide whether a foliar application or a biological or a soil amendment, wh where's the right place to start? 
And in my opinion, I believe the right place to start is with photosynthesis and growing really healthy plants. Because when you have healthy plants, as you described in the, uh, alluded to in the, in the cover crop or in the buckwheat reference, really healthy plants can actually change a soil's analysis surprisingly fast when there is an underlying geological profile. One of my most uh, prof remarkable experiences in this regard was with a farm that we were working with in Nebraska, commercial large-scale soybean production, and we put on one foliar application onto the soybeans during the growing season on 30 acres of a 60-acre field. So we split the field into a treated and untreated section. After, and we had soil analysis on, on both sections before the treatment, and we then in fall of the prior year, and then we took a second set of soil analysis in fall of the current year after the crop was removed. They were one year apart, same season. You would think the soil analysis would be very similar. But on the treated section, the, on the untreated section and, and before the applications, the entire field was very calcium deficient. Uh, we're looking at very acidic pHs, pHs of about 5.2 to 5.3, and uh, calcium levels about 32 to 35% base saturation. The following year on the treated section where we put on one foliar application, calcium levels jumped to 60 to 65% base saturation and pHs were 6.2 to 6.3. We added no calcium. We added no limestone. What changed is the plants produced such a large volume of sugars and sent such a large volume of sugars out through the root system that they provided an abundant food source for biology to tap into and release calcium that was already present in the soil's geological profile. Now, obviously, this doesn't work for all minerals in all soils. In order to get this type of response, that soil's underlying geological foundation needed to have adequate calcium levels in order to get the calcium release. So this, this isn't true of all minerals. It's not true. I, I don't want to suggest that you can just do this across the board and expect biology to fix all mineral imbalances because I don't believe that to be the case. But um, I do believe that soil amendments are not always the right place to begin. I, I don't know. Am I confused? What's the difference between a foliar application and an amendment? A foliar application is designed specifically to be sprayed onto a plant leaf surface and to be absorbed by the foliage and to accelerate plant health. An amendment is typically referred to as what, what, the way that I'm typically referred to it is as a soil amendment of a large quantity of material to the soil itself. So several um, hundreds or thousands of pounds per acre or tens of pounds per thousand square feet in the case of a garden. Well, this is fascinating. Nobody's, well, I don't know, truth be told, a lot of the things you've talked about, I feel like Patty Armbruster has said the same thing perhaps differently we i don't know i, I yeah <laughs> i i i invite the uh, the dialogue and the debate i think it's it's an intriguing conversation to have and i think we need to really shift our perspective the conversation about plant health should not be framed as from the soil up it should be framed as from the sun down because plants fundamentally are photosynthetic factories photosynthesis is the engine that we can harness that drives the entire system. And when you think about it, 
Photosynthesis is the only way you have of bringing new energy into the system. It's the only way you have of bringing new energy into an ecosystem. And so when you, this is, uh, I, I make this, I have this conversation with commercial farmers. It's slightly different for gardeners, but when you do the math of the quantity of carbon that can be sequestered and fixed into a soil, uh, I'll just have to give it in a very abbreviated form here. When you go back to the written history of agriculture, the agronomists in the 1960s and 1970s engaged in conversations about how to build soil organic matter very quickly. And the consensus of that era was that the fastest way to build soil organic matter was to grow corn. And today, we have the idea that growing corn extracts organic matter. And it's true that it does, but it's not the fault of the corn plant. The difference is in how we manage corn today versus how we manage it in the 60s and 70s. So we've observed that we can build as much as a half a percentage point of organic matter per year by growing corn on a commercial scale, growing corn on corn year after year on the exact same soil. So when you do the math, a corn crop can transmit as much as 15,000 pounds of carbohydrates out through the root system to feed soil biology. Now for a farmer on a commercial scale, that's seven and a half tons per acre. A farmer cannot economically afford to put on enough compost to match that. Economics simply don't exist. And the, the, it's, this is slightly less true in a gardening situation because for a garden, you can justify putting on um, dozens of tons of compost per acre. But um, the, ultimately, the fastest way to build soil is to focus on building plants. And so I, I want to, I also realize that in the course of this conversation, I'm, I'm emphasizing and focusing very strongly specifically on plants. I'm doing that deliberately because I believe it's a side of the conversation that has been missed and that hasn't been well understood and well described. But I do want to also add that soils and plants, soil and plants are both part of the same ecosystem. They are intended to have a synergistic relationship. Healthy plants create healthy soil, and then that healthy soil supports further generations of healthy plants. So I don't want to uh, be perceived as saying that it's not necessary for us to have healthy soils, because that is a goal that we should be striving for and something that we should be working towards. And the fastest pathway, the shortcut, the key to hacking the system is to grow really healthy plants, not to focus on soil amendments. So does it change over time? Like after you get those healthy plants after a year or two and your soil gets healthy, then does it just kind of like- Absolutely. Work on its own Absolutely. where you don't have to do any of that anymore? That's a great question, Jackie. And the answer is yes. It's a self-perpetuating. The reality is when we dive deeply into the science of of agriculture ecosystems, we can make it sound really complicated, but the reality is that it was designed to work. And it's in that sense, it's actually very simple. So when you get really healthy plants and really healthy soils, you, you have this, it's, it's a perpetual motion machine. It's a self-perpetuating system where you have healthy soils. Or you start with healthy plants. You have really healthy plants. They produce a large volume of sugar. They send it to the root system which feeds soil biology. Soil biology extracts minerals and make them, makes them available to plant in abundant quantities. 
Now plants have abundant mineral nutrition and they become even healthier. So that's a self-perpetuating cycle in which the grower needs to include minimal and perhaps even no inputs. We have now a number of very successful examples of large-scale commercial farmers with no nutrient inputs. They don't need them anymore. And that I think, that I think is the ultimate goal that we need to strive for, is to have a truly sustainable system. There's lots of conversations today in agriculture and gardening about sustainability. We should have no desire to sustain our current agricultural model. We have extremely degraded soils. We have unhealthy plants that are susceptible to diseases and insects. We should have no desire to sustain where we are today. We first need to have a conversation about a much more regenerative agriculture ecosystem that has the capacity to regenerate soil health, to regenerate plant health, and to really grow food that is so nutritious that it can function as food as medicine. And when we've achieved that much higher plateau of performance, only at that point can we have a legitimate conversation about growing food as medicine. And only at that point can we have a legitimate conversation about a truly sustainable agriculture. So um, I believe that the use of foliar applications and soil analysis and soil amendments and cover crops, all of these are useful tools, but they're a tool, tools on the pathway to us achieving that ultimate goal. I always thought that's what they meant by sustainable agriculture. I didn't think they meant they wanted to sustain what we're doing now. I thought they meant that they wanted agriculture that would lead to a planet that was going to be healthy and not have degraded soils like you're talking about. Well, it depends on whose definition of sustainable agriculture that you listen to. I think there are many. Yeah, that's interesting that some people out there must think a different way for you to. There are many people who believe that sustainable agriculture um, is that you can have a sustainable agriculture with our current levels of soil health and our current levels of plant health. There are many people who believe that the definition of healthy plants does not exclude the presence of disease and insect pests. I can tell you that when you have diseases or when you have insects, you don't have healthy plants. That's like saying that, uh, oh, I'm perfectly healthy except that I have this little touch of heart disease. It doesn't work that way. Either, you're, either plants are resistant to diseases and insects and they're healthy or they're not. And so I think there is this, this perception that we can have a sustainable ecosystem as long as we have unhealthy plants. And from my perspective, that is simply unsustainable because it means we will constantly be required to input pest control methods of some nature. Hmm. So even like things like Japanese beetles that people are always talking about having to like pick off or like if you get an aphid infestation, like one year we had this, we have one, we had like more broccoli plants than we've ever had. And Mike brought in this one piece that was like, it looked like it was moving this whole plant, like every aphid or whatever it was out there eating it was only in the one plant, but all the others, it didn't bother any of them. Like... Is that what you mean by having unhealthy plants or like, and like so many people have talked about like squash borers, having to go in and cut them out. Well, that's, that's one, uh, what you described as one localized example, but what I'm really referring to is that it is possible for plants, any plant to have such a highly functional immune system that they are 100% resistant to all diseases and all insects. And yes, I mean, Japanese beetles, 
I mean Colorado potato beetles, I mean cucumber beetles, I mean tomato hornworm, I mean everything. There is nothing excluded from that list. And this is not hyperbole. This is something that we have effectively done for over a decade on a large commercial field scale. So, you know, I think one of the reasons my podcast is successful is because I'm super curious and I'm also not like too embarrassed to admit that parts of this conversation are definitely over my head scientifically. But so I'm so curious, like, like, do you have some advice to listeners? Like, where would they get started? Well, <clears throat> we have realized that it is very important for us in the work that we are doing to share the information, the knowledge that we have learned, that we've experienced publicly and make it accessible to everyone. So that was really the inspiration for starting the podcast, is the inspiration for the webinars. I would suggest you look at uh, our YouTube channel, Advancing Eco Agriculture's YouTube channel, and uh, for all the videos that we have posted, we're constantly hosting additional webinars as well. Uh, also, the, the challenge, of course, with webinars and with podcasts is they're, they're relatively short form. And sometimes if you really want to dig deeply into the science, you need a, a bit longer form content. Uh, there is some of it on our website at advancingecoag.com. But we're also in the process of uh, launching an online academy that will be um, academy.regen.ag, which will be launched in the, at the end of January. Uh, you, can all, you can already go to the website and uh, sign up by email for our mailing list. So the Academy will be a series of in-depth online courses in which we describe um, the, the, the science and the applications needed to manage specific insect pests, for example, or to manage specific diseases. So we talk about the, the concepts and the principles of regenerative agriculture ecosystems that we've developed and that we use on a large commercial scale. So I think those, those would be the, the obvious place that, uh, that I would point to. And uh, there, there are other resources. And I, I also, in, in the podcast, which I host, the Regenerative Agriculture Podcast, I always ask my guests the question of resources um, that they would point to, that they would suggest. And they have offered up an incredible wealth and variety of different resources, a very broad range. I would highly suggest you check it out. We, we list those resources on on um, the podcast transcripts, and there, there, there's lots of very valuable places to go for information. I think the, the challenge today is whenever we speak about the science of these regenerative agriculture ecosystems, we, we approach, we have a couple of fundamentally different approaches to thinking about agriculture than what is currently considered to be mainstream. Uh, for example, the idea that I mentioned a moment ago, we think that diseases and insects do not occur at random, but that they are an expression of a nutritional imbalance that is, that is and we, we perceive diseases and insects to be nature's survival of the fittest mechanisms. They're here to take the unhealthy plants out of the system, which is a very different paradigm than mainstream agriculture, which perceives disease and insects to occur at random. And because of these different perspectives, the supporting ideas, science, ideologies, et cetera, are very widely dispersed. They're scattered all over the place. And um, my, my only, it, it may seem a bit self-serving to point to our information, but I think 
what we have attempted to do and are working to do is to try to bring all these scatter bits and pieces of information together into a co more coherent fashion. Okay, I'd be remiss to not ask you two questions. What do you think about hemp? I love it. It's awesome. Let's farm hemp instead of corn. Because it has bigger leaves, wouldn't it? Like a bigger space. Like if you're talking about photosynthesis, like wouldn't that create... And the people are always telling me I should eat hemp protein. It drives me crazy because it's so expensive and hemp seed oil. I love hemp seed oil, salad dressing, super, also super expensive. Maybe you just need to start growing it yourself. Then the expensive uh, <laughs> becomes a bit less so. But I think um, there, there are many very positive and favorable arguments to be made for hemp. Um, it obviously has very limited disease and insect pressure. So very limited pesticide applications. It has the capacity to sequester carbon and build soil health. Uh, at a volume and a rate that very few other crops can match. Uh, I think there are many positive attributes to hemp and that it should never have been uh, disallowed in the first place. Okay, and then oh, what was the other question? Um, all right, well, maybe, uh, I don't know. So anything else that you want to tell listeners that I may have, I just, I appreciate you spending all this time with us and I know you're really busy and um, I feel like they're really gonna, like, I think you've answered a lot of questions like a lot of people have had and talked about that from a different point of view. Um, I'm just, I guess I'm thinking about photos. I think my other question had something to do with like, you keep talking about like, increasing photosynthesis which makes me think like we want to grow more squashes because squash plants have bigger leaves but like am i totally off there well we want to grow really healthy plants have very large leaves um one of the things that we've observed is that healthier plants have leaves that are wider and shorter as in ratio to each other so the overall leaf may, of a really healthy plant may be substantially larger than an unhealthy plant, but it'll still have a different ratio. And other ways you can increase photosynthesis are by increasing leaf thickness, which is a function of some of the minerals and the nutrients that I spoke of. So it's, it's really not about, um, it's not about the leaf surface area that a given plant has. It's about that, that overall plant's archetype and how well it photosynthesizes as a complete unit. So for example, um, a corn plant is there are three ecosystems which sequester carbon faster than all others. And the first is an early growth stage coniferous forest. The second is a perennial polyculture of grasses and legumes and forbs that is being grazed by intensively managed rotational grazing. And the third is growing corn. Corn can sequester carbon, which means that it can build organic matter faster than any other annual crop. And the reason for that is because it is a C4, it has a different photosynthetic pathway, it has a C4 photosynthetic pathway, which makes it a very efficient photosynthesizer, similar to other some of the other warm season grasses as well. And, and it, it produces a lot of biomass. So fundamentally, what we're speaking of, similar to what you would think of for a cover crop, is when you have a plant where the plant itself produces a lot of biomass, you can think of that biomass production as being an analog 
for the quantity of sugars that it can produce and transmit to the soil profile once it becomes really healthy. So the challenges with a squash plant are that, yes, it visually looks very large and very substantial, but once you dry it down and you lose all the moisture content and the water content, it shrivels up into almost nothing. That's so interesting because, you know, like one of the things that we struggle with is like getting that corn to break down, like the corn stalks. Like we even bought a chipper one year so Mike could like shred them into the compost easier. And like corn is even still better than hemp for sequestering the carbon. I think corn, my understanding at this moment is that corn can sequester carbon faster than hemp and that it can build more organic matter faster than hemp. But corn has other... Uh, side effects and their attributes, which may be uh, less ideal. Uh, and one very simple fundamental point right now is that 40% of all the corn grown in North America at the moment is being used for fuel, which is complete idiocy. What is it used for fuel for like corn? What? It's, being, uh, it's being turned into ethanol. Oh, right. Uh... I was going to ask a question like, and this is going to like totally prove my scientific like lack of understanding, but like, so does this work the same like with solar panels? <laughs> you might, you don't have to answer that if I'm like totally off base, but. Well, I'm, I'm not a solar panel expert and I don't understand, I don't believe it's possible to increase the efficiency of solar panels by orders of magnitude, although it is my understanding that there's constantly developing technology to be more efficient and substantially more efficient at um, absorbing solar radiation. So that's obviously a, a, an area, a technology area that is constantly evolving. Okay, cool. All right. Well, anything else that you wanted to talk about that I didn't touch on? I know we're probably going way longer than you thought. And I feel like you've the given only tons of valuable information. People are going to love your website and, the, the one thought that I would share is the only difference between a regenerative farming ecosystem and a really vibrantly healthy farm or garden and a degenerative farming system in which soil health and plant health continue to be eroded and degraded is the farm manager. It's the only difference, fundamentally. The farm manager and the management decisions that you make so you can manage an ecosystem to be constantly improving or to be constantly degrading. And which gives you a tremendous um, opportunity and a tremendous responsibility at the same time to manage that ecosystem for your greatest benefit and for the ecosystem's greatest benefit as well. So I would, I would wow. say that, um, and it's, it's also important to remember to have fun enjoy what you're doing. I know many gardeners do this because obviously this is why they are in gardening, but um, love your plants, talk to your plants, communicate with them and um, have fun with what you're doing because it's very powerful. And that simple connection can actually overcome many, what would be perceived as being foundational nutritional challenges. Um, plants desire to serve people and when we anticipate that and engage with them in that fashion, we can produce some extraordinary effects and responses. 
Well, my listeners know I love Rockstar Millennials. And if you aren't one of the top Rockstar Millennials I have ever talked to, John, I don't know who's out there. Advancing Eco Agriculture. We'll put all the links in the show notes. Don't worry if you um, were driving or exercising or couldn't take notes. Um, I will make sure that the show notes for this episode are stellar. So thank you so much for sharing with us today, John. This was awesome. Thanks, Jackie. Have an awesome day. Freegardencourse.com. Mike and I have developed some lessons to help you create your very own organic oasis. We'll guide you through the steps to build your perfect natural landscape, an edible earth-friendly yard, a sustainable deep bed garden, or even start a small profitable market farm. We'll show you how to save time, lower your produce bill, collect usable data, eat healthy and nutritious food with minimal labor, um, use the most effective and efficient production methods currently being used in backyard gardens as well as market farms, and maybe even help you find some profitable markets. We've designed it to save you time, lower your produce bill, and help you eat healthy and nutritious food. Um, there's checklists, there's outside reading, video assignments. Uh, you can join the online Facebook community where there's lots of people from around the world to help you get your garden started today. So remember, freegardencourse.com. Hey there, green future growers. Would you like your friends and neighbors to create an organic oasis too? Would you like others in your area to learn about earth-friendly practices for their gardens and yards? If so, we would love it if you would share the Organic Gardener podcast with your local community or college radio station today. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.